Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them. I understand that and I hope you do too. Thank you. Um, what I didn't realise was that one of the brothers was already laying in wait. I could hear this distinctive click, 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 click sound, and having had a bit of military training, I automatically recognised it as rifle trigger going off. And that's when I saw one of the brothers behind a barricade putting a rifle at me. A few months ago, I introduced you to Jeff Garland, a retired senior sergeant from New South Wales Police who was medically discharged with PTS. Remember, Jeff doesn't refer to it as PTSD due to the stigma around the word disorder, which I tend to agree with and I've begun using myself. And after policing, Jeff became, amongst other things, a master NLP coach, NLP being Neuro Linguistic Programming. Well, today's guest has walked a similar path to Jeff's. However, he's a former Victorian policeman, having served 33 years, 23 of which he spent as a detective, before walking out the door, a dedicated but damaged detective who knew after being involved in the Burke Street investigation that he was finished and too damaged to return to a job that he loved. Rob Blazard initially went down the traditional path of CBT treatment, uh, cognitive behaviour therapy, to help deal with his demons, but then he discovered NLP, the Neuro Linguistic Programming. We all react differently and recover differently to trauma, and Rob found NLP was a perfect fit for him, to the point he's now a master NLP practitioner and master conscious hypnosis practitioner. Rob discovered NLP through other alternatives to help him heal, and that was hiring a life coach. But rather than hire one, he decided to become one. And through that process, Rob discovered NLP, which then became the holy grail for him in his recovery. What a better life coach than someone with lived experience with dealing with traumas that we need that bit of extra help to deal with. Rob discovered 
there is something out there for those who aren't big on talking about their trauma, which is what CBT is based on. He did a few sessions of NLP and afterwards said that he just felt different, like the painful memories and visions he'd been reliving day after day with little escape had been released. Rob has joined forces with Costa Nicolaitis, I think it's how you say it, a registered psychologist and fellow NLP master practitioner who's worked in the field for 29 years, working with everything from depression to schizophrenia and specialising in complex trauma, PTS and personality disorders. Rob and Costa together conducted an NLP trial where three former VicPol members and seven volunteers from the armed forces and the prison system agreed to take part in that trial. Next week, we talk with Costa and Neil, one of those volunteers who took part in the trial, to tell us about their experiences with NLP and the amazing benefits that it's produced. So thanks for your time, Rob. And I've got to say just from the outset, I know Burke Street was your tipping point and how fortunate I am that I wasn't a serving member then. As I know, it damaged so many members, many of whom could never return to policing. And I'm sorry to all those members, including yourself and members of the public who are still carrying the scars and uh, the memories of what they witnessed that day. But um, anyway, thanks for joining us, Rob. Absolute pleasure, Daryl. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yes, the pleasure is all mine. So, Rob, Like many detectives, uh, you started on the divan and worked your way into the squads, uh, which really are a big deal in policing. Detectives work extremely hard, extremely long hours, as their investigations are often complex and require a certain expertise. It's very rewarding, but it also can affect us greatly because the crimes that we investigate often change people's lives and our own, <laughs> for that matter. What did you love about being a detective? Well, Narelle, I started my career uh, back in 1988. I was um, stationed at Kew, which is a very quiet suburban police station in the leafy suburbs of least of the suburbs. I was as keen as mustard to get into it, I was, <clears throat> but I was very, very disappointed uh, by the lack of motivation of the members at that particular station. And it was, <clears throat> you know, six months down the track, I almost thought about quitting policing because I was so demotivated by these people. Um, but having spoken to a couple of squad mates who had gone to some busier stations, I re- recognised there was uh, other places to go. So I stuck around. What I did recognise back in, in those early days uh, was that the local detectives seemed to be uh, more highly motivated than the uniform people, and that's when I decided that was where I was going to be heading. Uh, I had all that motivation, but I was unfortunately working at a place where motivation um, was very scarce. So it wasn't the best start to my career, but... In hindsight, I guess it probably motivated me to uh, to become a detective. And you obviously were a detective in a lot of uh, squads, which I'll uh, go into in a minute, but what was your proudest moment as a detective? I, I don't think there was one particular. Uh, I think it was the idea of what detectives did that probably would make me proud. And working in some fields like organised crime, uh, and violent crime situations. Anytime you remove somebody uh, from 
society uh, to do their, their time uh, for committing violent offences, even though it's not something that's measured uh, in the crime stats, you know mm. deep down that you're preventing a lot of serious crime being uh, occurring in the future. So for me, taking particular people off the street, uh, I now know that you know I've uh, inadvertently prevented a lot of crime occurring. And crime does create a lot of trauma in victims and first responders. So every time we do our job, in a, in a little way, we're helping society not to become victims. Mm. And we're also helping, that's right, the, the victims of crime are the ones that, like you take away, uh, you know, the bad boys and bad girls, we put them inside, but the victims just, it, it m- most of them that I dealt with and I imagine in organised crime and in the squad you're in, they are affected for their life. It, it changes their life, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I've seen it uh, happen many, many times over the years. And so anytime we can prevent that from occurring, uh, and we do, and we just, as I say, it's not something that can be measured, but we know that we're having an impact out there. Yeah, we are. And, and I don't think a lot of the public really, they hear about the uh, the arrests, say, that the media report on but there's so much more that goes on. And I, I know they get that, but, you know, we do as detectives or as police, we do a lot, well, we do everything we can to keep them safe. And I don't think some people really um, know how close maybe they came to being a victim because we got those people off the street and put them where they should be inside. Yeah, that's right. And especially in the organised crime field, uh, uh, majority or a fair portion of the crimes go unreported because of the nature of the, the people that they're dealing with. Mm, so, and I suppose, so and I suppose the, the threats and the danger that, that they feel if they do report something and, I, and a justified uh, danger too, isn't it? That's right, absolutely. And, and if we can find a means to get them off the street without uh, victims having to testify, it then gives some relief to the victims and we can still do what we need to do to remove them from society. Yeah, so so you worked in um, a few squads. You just mentioned then organised crime and you were in the Middle Eastern units. Uh, you worked at armed robbery, homicide and gaming and vice, the racing unit. And, look, this probably sounds naive of me to say, but... I would have thought that gaming and vice may not have thrown up as dangerous a situation you could encounter as working, say, with the armed robbery squad or organised crime or homicide, but it actually turns out that that's exactly what happened. In fact, it was very close, as close as you'd want to get to being killed during a particular investigation with gaming and vice. Can can you tell us about that? Yeah, so back in 1980, oh, sorry, 1998, um, our unit, um, and remember that gaming and vice in the racing industry is infiltrated by organised crime, so we do have those players in that field. Um, but on this particular occasion, they weren't the type of people we were dealing with. It was a, a couple of brothers. One of them was actually a registered horse trainer in Victoria, and due to their gambling habit, they came up with a scheme of stealing horses. Now, what they're able to do with the horses, which is 
pretty sad story in itself is they would obtain these horses by deception um, and take the horses to the abattoir and get $500 um, and the horses would be turned into dog meat. And the way they did that was uh, travelling around Victoria, country Victoria, um, they would find a horse in a paddock and they'd approach the owner of the horse and basically say, look, I think that horse has got some potential in harness racing. Can you give it to me to train for 12 months? I think we can make some money out of this horse. And, of course, the old, old farmers are oblivious to the story and, and the mm. real uh, motivation behind it. It's just a horse sitting in a paddock to him, and, of course, they agreed. And the Super Brothers had obtained about 80 horses over a period of um, nine months. So they didn't make a lot of money out of it, but some of the horses turned out to be quite valuable to the victims, and some of them were, in fact, pets uh, of some of the victims. So it was a pretty sad state of affairs that uh, they'd gotten away with this for so long. So we we were really keen to to get the evidence to uh, to arrest them, and uh, one of the uh, methods we were using, uh, we knew we'd discovered that they were had used or borrowed a friend's horse float. And so the only way to find out if we could recover some of the horses was to follow the horse float. And so we came up with a plan to install a tracking device into the spare wheel of the horse float. Now, this horse float was in a country town at, in Gisborne, and the, the float was parked in the driveway. So we had to get our uh, technicians to sneak in there in the middle of the night and plant this a tracking device into the uh, into the spare wheel of the horse float. Unfortunately, it seemed to be the hangout place for all the local kids who would be there till three, four o'clock in the morning drinking beer and, and skylighting. So yeah. it was actually two two weeks of night shift out there every night, and anybody who's done a any sort of installation of a uh, uh, tracking device knows that everything needs to go perfectly in order for it to. Uh, to occur and of course every night these same years would be hanging around the house drinking beer and carrying on and eventually we came up with a plan to move them on and we spent an hour getting the device in and uh, the owner of the horse float woke up that morning um, got in his car hooked up the horse float drove 300 metres to what we didn't realise was being set up which was a Vic Roads roadblock where they were checking oh, yeah, roadworthiness yeah. of yeah. vehicles and they immediately said to the owner of the float that his spare tyre was unroadworthy and so he, being a very astute person, the nearest bow repairs where the device was uh, found within an hour. <clears throat> so anyway, we lost the uh, element of surprise there and we decided, look, we had to, had to act fast before any more horses were uh, taken, so... Uh, we decided on a day that we would arrest the two. And there was only three of us involved in the arrest of the two boys. There. They had no real prize for violence. Um, they were basically just a couple of knucklehead boys. And so what we didn't realise that somebody had noticed the surveillance car sitting outside their house and decided to go and tell the boys that they were in the surveillance. Now, we were on in the process of coming out to the house to make the arrest. <clears throat> What we didn't realise was one of the brothers then came up with a cutting plan to um, kill us as we arrived. So he created a barricade in his driveway 
uh, in the garage. And as you look into the garage, it was quite dark because there was no natural lighting in there. So as we've arrived at the property to make the arrest, I've uh, taken the task of being the rear cutoff. So my job was to go around to the back of the house and just ensure that none of them uh, escaped out the back door and if they did arrest them. Um, what I didn't realise was that one of the brothers was already laying in wait. So as I got out of the car and ran into them towards the back door or the back gate to get into the back yard, I could hear this distinctive click, 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 click sound. And having had a bit of military training, they automatically recognised it as rifle uh, trigger oh going off. Yeah. And that's when my eyes adjusted to where the sound was and that's when I saw uh, one of the brothers behind a barricade pointing a rifle at me. Now, at this point, I got within four feet of it because the back gate was directly to my left. And to this day, I still don't recall how I did it because I was wearing a long coat, I was wearing a jacket underneath all buttoned up and somehow my firearm was out in a split second and up on the target. Um, Literally, I was pull, I was about to pull the trigger. Uh, I pulled half the trigger, and I was about to unload the entire firearm in his direction because I believe that he was trying to kill me. And yeah. he then re- realised that the gun that he picked up, and he had quite a few of them uh, next to him, uh, he hadn't actually got around to loading. So it was just by sheer luck on that particular occasion that I didn't shoot him, and that he didn't shoot me. So. Mm. So, yeah, so they were, they were arrested and charged and I think the, the magistrate fined the brother um, $500 for used firearm to prevent arrest. So that was a real kick in the teeth. But what it did do was create a sense of hypervigilance in myself after that. Every time I went to a house, I would expect that sort of um, uh, incident to occur and it wasn't something I could stop. And so that sort of became my natural state after that. And I went on to go to over a thousand search warrants over you know, the rest of my career. So I was living in this state of hypervigilance, um, which I probably didn't want to believe. And so what I did to counteract that was I kept throwing myself into more dangerous situations. Um, always put my hand up to be the first one to go through a door. And I think that a lot of that was to prove to myself that that incident had impacted me. But looking back on it now, it certainly had. You know, Rob, with you telling me that, I just think um, on the lighter side, there's obviously a very darker side to that job, but on the lighter side, there are just some jobs that are doomed from the start, isn't it? And, like, how could you ever prepare, like in an operation order, you've got to put in, you know, what could happen and what you've um, done to... Uh, alleviate all these different scenarios, you could never in a million years put in that, uh, yes, we've uh, factored in that Vic Roads may have a roadblock uh, just, you know, down the road from these knuckleheads, as you refer to them as, like you can't plan for that. I just think to myself, how many times have we been in, you know, a job like that where you have these LDs or trackers and you think, you know, this is just going to go beautifully. <laughs> well, right. Sometimes the, the moons align in our favour and sometimes the day favours certainly an occasion because when we did, after his arrest and we searched behind the barricade, he had 
quite elaborate firearms loaded, ready to go. So, you know, he, I don't think he was going to stop until he'd run out of ammunition. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and- it was just very, very lucky for, for me that he hadn't got around to loading that particular firearm or he'd forgotten he hadn't loaded it. And he was very lucky that I recognised yeah. as he dropped the firearm that he was about to surrender because I was literally a split, split second away from um, shooting him. You know, it also shows, and, and like I was just going to say, like, and then there's the darker side of what happened, but, you know, yes, they're two knuckleheads from Gisborne, but you cannot ever go into a warrant um, or, you know, an arrest or search or whatever being laissez-faire and a bit um, blasé because anything can happen at any time. And unfortunately, you learnt the hard way and, you know, it sounds like from that moment on, every warrant uh, that you went to or any, well, you were just in a heightened state of hypervigilance and, and I, you know, I wonder why. Like, there's no wonder why. But how did you cope with nearly being killed from a psychological point of view? Did, did you go and seek some help or did you talk to somebody? No, I mean, if you go back to 1998, it's still in policing terms, the dark ages. Uh, and I know, well, I guess, people who police in the 70s would disagree with that comment, but in relatively speaking, <laughs> we, didn't, yeah. we didn't talk about our feelings back then. We, yeah, we would go to the pub and have a laugh about the situation. And, and I think a lot of police, and certainly, you know, my experience has been that's how we've always dealt with uh, situations where, we ought to be talking about our feelings and how it impacted us, but that's just not the environment we grew up in. It's not the environment policing was at that particular time. Um, it's better now, but I still think we've got a long way to go. So so we buried it. Everything got buried. Uh, all that trauma got buried. All the little jobs you went to, you know, the, the fatal accidents, the shootings, the suicides, all that stuff got buried uh, generally, you know, underneath a bottle of bourbon or something like that, whatever people's flavour was, but we certainly were taught at a young age in policing that alcohol was the um, the cure for everything. The the debrief, I can um, I can remember countless debriefs. Uh... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And they are at the, the pub or uh, at the back of the station and, uh, you know, over, as you say, a bottle of bourbon or, you know, whatever it was in the day, but that was our debrief. But, I mean, obviously now we know that that doesn't work. Well, clearly it doesn't work because it comes back to bite us big time if we ignore, um, you know, a, a normal human emotion of being exposed to what we are as police. Um, you... You were working in those squads. Uh, I'm going to now go to the organised crime, the Middle Eastern uh, units. Um, you weren't on a Christmas card list, were you, of a particular crime family um, that you were working on? What did you do to them to be swiped off their Christmas card list? Yeah, we we started up the Middle Eastern unit. Uh, it was as a result of a, a, a need to tackle some fairly um, prominent crime families in the Middle Eastern uh, community. And, and the, the Middle Eastern community were begging us to, to tackle some of these crime families. And so we selected what we thought was our uh, best target and we put a couple of crews on them until such time as we locked them up and... Uh, sometimes those investigations would take three months, sometimes they would take 12 months, but collectively our aim was to reduce the amount of offending by these families. And so that method was really successful and I was lucky enough to work with some incredible guys at the Middle Eastern Unit um, who all had the same attitude towards uh, the the job that was at hand, and it was a dangerous job, um, but nobody shied away from it. And, um, you know, and that that was quite satisfying to be involved in something like that because we knew how big a difference we were making out in that particular community once we, mm. you know, arrested a lot of these uh, offenders. So, <clears throat> but in one particular family, uh, they became our, our second target family, um, and they pretty much been standing over the local community out in the Altona area, they were effectively standing over the police. Uh, they were that feared um, by the local community. And they, the crimes they were committing on a daily basis were just extraordinary. Uh, you know, no, I've never seen offending by a small group on such a large scale. It was every single day of the week they were committing serious, serious crimes. And What, what, what sort of crimes, Rob? Oh, the... Involved, obviously involved in drug dealing. They were involved in kidnapping on a regular basis. 
uh, are involved in murders, um, extortion, anything to make money. They weren't, none of them had legitimate jobs and it was a family-based business and they were yep. you know, very, very uh, feared out in that community because nobody had stood up to them and effectively they were just bullies uh, out there. But they were quite violent. They always carried firearms and they had no hesitation in using them. And they a really good example of the mentality of that family would be, uh, I remember when we first started working on them, uh, we had surveillance on one of the members of the family and just out of the blue, he pulls up at a set of lights and pulls out a gun and starts shooting at the driver of the car next to him. And it turns out, we've, we discovered later on, that he thought it was an undercover policeman in the car. <gasps> and so and there's some poor innocent person sitting at the traffic lights that's now being peppered with bullets. This was the mentality of these people. So... Anyway, so we, our, our job was to investigate them and arrest them and lock them all up. And so we, over a period of six months, we gathered, gathered a lot of uh, evidence against them, enough that they were going to get some serious jail time and hopefully alleviate the, uh, the problems they were having out in that particular community. So on the day of the, uh, the warrants were to be executed, and it was a fairly dynamic situation because we had two houses that had to be simultaneously raided at the same time and it was obviously the special operations group who were tasked with that job because this family um, used firearms on a regular basis so what happened three hours before the warrant was to be executed one of the family members was over in another suburb shooting up a house and stamping his uh, his authority in, the, in that particular suburb as well. And uh, what we didn't know is that he contacted one of his brothers at home and said, look, this is what I've been doing. Get ready for a run-through by this other crime family. And three hours later, the special operations group um, yeah. entered the house um, and uh, one of the family members inadvertently got shot um, dead by the SOG. Um, mm. And I'm sure he thought... It wasn't the SOG that he was attacking, but mm. and we'll never know. But um, that set off a series of events that uh, had another impact on me, which was uh, this family had a pretty big following up in Sydney, a lot of relatives and uh, family members up there, and there was some serious threats made against Victoria Police by that family uh, to the point where we had a task force set up in New South Wales and Victoria to investigate the threats. And these weren't people that you could laugh off and say, oh, well, they, they're not going to carry out their threats because they actually had alignment to a outlaw motorcycle gang as well. A couple of them were members of that. So these were pretty serious threats and even Victoria Police took it seriously enough to set up a task force and we had numerous telephone intercepts all over Australia um, trying to prevent the uh, revenge attack by the family. So, and I've heard through some of my close informers that uh, there was a couple of us that were a little bit more well-known in the Middle Eastern unit um, because we'd been there longer, uh, that they were going to target us in particular. And, and the threat started on the day of the shooting. Literally, we had to call in um, okay. extra reinforcements to, to allow for the homicide squad to conduct their investigation and prevent family members from... Um, attacking police on the day, and I think we ended up with about 80 extra police at the scene just to protect the detectives 
uh, in the in the homicide squad um, from random, you know, drive-by shootings and the like. We really did expect it on the day. So, yeah, they weren't people that you, you treated lightly when it, when they said they were going to kill you. You pretty much believe what they were saying. So, here I was already in a hyper-vigilant state, and now it's gone to a whole new level. Um, I moved my family out of the house for a month. Um, I started parking my car around the corner from home. I started jumping the back fence and walking around in my car at different times. So I changed everything I did for quite a while. Um, and back in those days, I didn't have a lot of things in my own name anyway. So it was going to be difficult for them to find me, but it didn't alleviate the, the stress on me uh, and my family and the other detectives who, you know, um, felt threatened by them as well. So... So, yeah, that just, that just added a whole new level of hypervigilance to me. So my new hypervigilance state just increased to a whole new level and still working in the Middle Eastern community um, and I was, I was hearing from time to time that the threats were still valid. Um, when they got out of the jail, I'm going to carry them out. And so it was just something I lived with for, for quite a long time and, and I, I ended up charging one of the sons of the family with, a, with an unrelated crime, another shooting um, several years later. And when I served these documents on him out of prison, he reiterated the threats that we haven't finished with you yet. So so it's, it was one of those things you just had to live with. Um, it did, we didn't shy away from the job, but it was something that deep down was, was having an impact slowly. Um, but again, we sold it on. We didn't talk about it. Uh, we kept doing the job and probably started drinking a little bit more um, just to help, you know, the, the getting to sleep and things like that. So, yeah, so that's, that, was, that took me to a whole new level. Oh, I just can't, oh, I just can't imagine that. I've, like, just the fact of somebody stalking me uh, would you know, like I've interviewed uh, a number of women recently that have been stalked and just how uh, scary um, that is. But to actually have somebody that you knew would uh, kill you at the drop of the hat or your family for that matter, I, oh, my God, Rob, I just don't know how you dealt with that. Um, How did your, and tell me if you don't want to answer this, but, how did your wife deal with this? Like she, it, it's none of, like she's married a policeman, but that that couldn't be good for your wife and your family. No, I mean, it wasn't. At the time, my children were very young. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, my second daughter was only about four weeks old at the time. So, um, look, I obviously kept a lot of the, the details from her and, um, because I didn't want her to be in that same heightened state as me. Um, so I, yeah, it, it definitely had an impact uh, on her. And, um, mm. But, yeah, I certainly kept a lot of the, the gory details away and the, the fact that they were incredibly dangerous people. Um, but it told her in general terms that this is what we're doing for a short time uh, until things die, die down. So, yeah, it's not, mm. not pleasant and, you know, Wives and girlfriends uh, and partners are secondary victims to a lot of these, uh, lot of the things we do. 
Yeah, and that's what I was just going to say. They are innocent victims. They've married a policeman or a policewoman uh, or are partners with them, and that's not the sort of thing that you expect. And I just think to myself, they need to be um, held up as uh, heroes in a lot of ways as well because of what they they deal with at home. But I'm just thinking to myself, would you would you have said something like, I don't know, um, look, don't ask any questions. I can't tell you a lot, but I need you to leave the house for a month. Is that the sort of conversation you would have had? Uh, my wife at the time would have uh, insisted on more questions, so I think it would have been very general and uh, okay. just said, look, let's go and stay at this motel for four weeks and, um, you know, clearly there's some, some threats being made um, and I might have played it down to her, not wanting to yeah. upset her or uh, yeah. her to know the truth about what I was thinking and feeling. Mm. Yeah, you'd like not to feel safe in your own house, I just cannot imagine. Uh, in, in Yeah, it's <laughs> almost lost for words, to be honest. Uh, Rob, these these incidents and experiences that you're telling me about, like I just tended to uh, brush over before, like I'm just thinking all this stuff that's happening to you, but also you said before with the brothers with the horse racing that it went to court and he got a $500 fine for discharging a firearm. Is that right? Did I hear that right? Yeah, so the offence, uh, we looked at charging with him with attempted murder, but the OPP... That's what I was thinking, yeah. ...said, it, and, and whether I agree with it or not, and I didn't, certainly didn't at the time, that because yeah. the firearm he picked up was unloaded, that it was impossible for him to have killed me. Now, obviously, I didn't know that at the time he was pulling the trigger. That's right, um, yeah. But they felt at the time it wasn't worth pursuing, that there was very little chance of success in court, so they suggested we charge them with use firearm to prevent arrest, which I thought would have carried a quite a decent penalty under the circumstances, especially when we, uh, as part of our summary to the court was, there were other firearms loaded. Um, mm. But mm. the magistrate, uh, and I'm still with the, uh, the clip from the newspaper, it still staggers me to this day that, the magistrate decided that was a, ge- a genuine penalty. Uh, whether he could or could not have killed me on the day, his intention was absolutely to kill me. And he was given a $500 fine and that was, and I think for, well, for stealing the, the horses, they didn't even go to jail for that either. That was all a community-based corrections order. Yeah. So. You know, and people wonder why you become disillusioned. But also, and then with this crime family that you're dealing with, did they, well, they did go to jail. Uh, did did you think that they got the right uh, sentence? Like, were you happy with their sentence? Because you could become so disillusioned, couldn't you, with the number of times that we do so much work and so many hours and we're away from our families and then you get to court and, you know, something like your $500 fine for discharging a firearm. I don't I don't know how some people don't just say, you know what, forget it. 
all that work and for nothing. Like you just don't get a lot of respect, I don't think, from the courts. It's it's. I I, I can only remember a couple of occasions I walked away from the court thinking that was fair and reasonable. Yeah, really, yeah, you're right. Maybe my expectations are too high. I think my expectations are probably in line with what most people in the community think, but it's not what generally happens in reality. And I understand that people have backgrounds and stories to tell and there's reasons why people fall into crime and into drugs and things like that. Um, mm. But a lot of occasions you just walk away shaking your head. And I did that on more, more occasions than I uh, didn't. And and what about the uh, crime family? Do you think that the uh, the right sentences were handed down? No, they were all out very, very, uh, I think within 18 months they were all out, and we charged them with some fairly serious crimes. Uh, one of them was attempted murder. Um, unfortunately, our victim who had made a, a fairly lengthy, I think it was about a 45-page statement about the fact that the family had kidnapped him from Brunswick taking him back home, sat him in a chair and one of the young sons pulled out a firearm and shot him straight in the chest. Now, he was lucky that the bullet ricocheted off a rib and went down to his leg and so they eventually took him to the hospital. He, unfortunately, uh, when we did get to court, withdrew his statement um, just purely out of fear of repercussions and he had a genuine genuine fear. Uh, No one was disputing that he should bat on with it. Um, but they were all out fairly quickly and the, uh, one of the sons, I think probably within a couple of months of being released, then shot and killed a fella over that way. Um, and that's sort of a series of events between two crime families out in the uh, western suburbs, uh, which was sort of well documented by the media. Um mm-hmm. So most of them now are incarcerated uh, or deceased through having been murdered themselves. So it's a uh, it's a different lifestyle they have, and it's a it's not one that generally going to allow you to live to a long age. You know, I'm just thinking about just taking, and and I completely understand that man uh, withdrawing his statement. To take a forty-five minute, a forty-five page statement, would take days, weeks, uh, you know, and and that's what I think. Uh, you know, you get to court and it, it's with he withdraws um, the statement, but that's a lot of work, isn't it? Jeez. Well, we, we spent over a month convincing him to start the statement. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, uh, you know, we. we had him in witness protection, we did everything to protect him, but at the end of the day he knew that we couldn't. So uh, Mm. understandably Mm. he made that decision. In finishing up today's part one of my two-part interview with Rob, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to listen to the damage that policing can do to somebody's life, but also how it affected Rob's marriage, like how his wife and family had to move out due to serious death threats that he'd received for just doing his job. No partner of any police person should be put in the position Rob's wife was. How confused and frightened she must have been and just, I suppose, had to trust her husband and probably not ask too many questions. Uh, Next week, 
Rob talks very openly about his role in the Burke Street incident of January 2017, where a man deliberately drove his car into pedestrians, killing six and seriously injuring 27. But there were many more that incident affected, including emergency service workers like Rob. It took around two years for the effects of this incident to really take a hold on Rob, and he took time off to try and deal with the demons that he was facing daily. Rob returned to work and decided the alcohol he was self-medicating with wasn't helping. But in him giving up alcohol, those visions, the smells, the haunting memories, they all began to rise to the surface. And counselling was actually perpetuating these horrors in his mind. And he set about finding something different to try, to ease the pain. And this is where Rob discovered NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, and also Costa uh, Nicolaitis. We talk in depth next week about how Rob discovered NLP and how it just made him feel different after just one session with Costa. Uh, Rob has now joined forces with Costa, a registered psychologist, uh, a fellow NLP master practitioner who's worked in the field of uh, counselling or psychology, I should say, for 29 years, uh, dealing with everything from depression to schizophrenia and specialising in complex trauma, PTS and personality disorders. Rob and Costa together conducted an NLP trial where three former members and seven volunteers from the armed forces and the prison system agreed to take part in that trial. In the following weeks, we talked to Costa and Neil, one of those volunteers who took part in the trial, to tell us about their experience with NLP and the amazing benefits it has produced. So until next week, take care. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression. I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. (laughs) Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.